Here's what you'll find in the latest Issues Etc. journal. I've written a column titled A Letter to Ex-Evangelicals. Pastor Rob Kieslowski has detailed his journey to the Lutheran Christian tradition. And Dr. Ken Sherb writes about the story of an entire city's journey to the Reformation, Strasbourg, France. We'll send you the Issues Etc. journal for free. Just click the red journal subscription button in the right-hand column at issuesetc.org. The free online Issues Etc. journal. Why can't it be good? Why can't it be good? Why can't it be good? I want to be like the wind when it... Are the ideas of virtue and vice, are those biblical ideas? Are those philosophical ideas imposed on Christianity? The Bible really has nothing to say about virtue or about... It's counterpoint, vice. And how do we understand that category as a key to discernment, the kind of discernment we want our children to have as we raise them in an age of secular progressivism? Welcome back to Issues Etc. It's part 12 of our series on raising Christian children in an age of progressivism. We're going to be talking about virtue and vice and teaching it to our children. Pastor Jonathan Fisk is our guest. He's host of a radio show called Sharper Iron, and he's author of the book, Broken, Seven Christian Rules That Every Christian Ought to Break As Often as Possible. Jonathan, welcome back. Yeah, thank you, Todd. First of all, are virtue and vice biblical categories? I think that's an excellent question, and and I think my answer is yes, absolutely, although kind of in a, a roundabout way. So the, the idea of, of virtue and vice really comes out of at least as language, a more medieval way of talking about Christianity, or at least a, a more early church way of talking about what Christianity teaches, where the fathers and others took the law as revealed in Old and New Testament and kind of categorized it in in a topical way and then bounced them off each other so that within Luther does this, particularly with the Ten Commandments, shows that there's both a good and a bad side to the law. There's a do this, but a don't do that. But the language of virtue and vice, for the most part, is not used as the way that the Bible talks about these things. Uh, The language the Bible uses is righteousness, right? Righteousness and unrighteousness. So I think what we got to do to start with is hear virtue and vice as a faithful representing of that almost jargonish, heavy, 50-cent theological word, dikaios, righteousness, right? Uh, in a little more, if I can say, a modern or postmodern or, or a, a pop way of saying it. I go out there on the street and someone might, I, I talk about righteousness and they may not be able to follow me, but if I talk about virtue, Americans still can kind of kind of hear that. Now, again, I said it's a roundabout way. You're tracking this through medieval Roman Catholic categories of, you know, how do we judge different types of sin? And I'm not sure I, I want all that baggage, but what I can say is that these seven pairs really do capture what we mean as Christians when we want to talk about the new obedience of the regenerate believer, right? Or if we want to call that sanctification, I don't always like to use that word sanctification in that way because it's such a broader word, but the the new obedience, the fact that born again in Christ, we have these new minds that are conformed to love his law, not just because he said so, but because it's 
good and right and true. And to go against it is to do things that are evil and wrong and harmful to others. And again, these categories are ways of helping us kind of wrap our minds around the bigger picture or to, to awaken our imaginations, to, to reassess righteousness, not as a, a puritanical do this, don't do that, but instead as a, a, a virtue, a good thing in and of itself, which helps us avoid those things that are, that are harmful to those around us. And I got to say, the first time I, I really reckoned with these things was about two years ago. I had just discovered this new little internet tool called Buffer. And, and if you follow me at all on internet stuff, you'll find out I do a bunch of weird things. I find these little tools and then I just try to use them and, and I just start throwing it out there. And it usually is a bit off-putting. You're like, why is Fisk doing this thing on Instagram? Well, because I'm, I'm toying with the tool. So I found Buffer. And what Buffer does is it, it lets you tweet ahead of schedule as many times a day as you want without having to be there, right? So you could you could sit there and write out like 55 tweets, and then over the next week, they all come out. And I'm like, oh, that's kind of cool. And I happen to be trying to read Dr. Francis Pieper's Dogmatics. I don't remember which volume it was at this time. I just picked it up. I was like, I got to read this stuff again. So I was reading it, and I was basically storm tweeting via buffer thoughts I had as I was reading his dogmatics. And initially, I was pushing these things through Twitter to Facebook, and initially, people were loving what he was saying. You know, he talks about Scripture being an error, and they're, oh, yeah, this is great, this is great. And he gets into this segment where he's talking about virtue and vice, and suddenly, I had like this firestorm. Why are you saying all this law, Pastor Fisk? What are you doing with this law? This isn't what we're supposed to hear from you. And I had to like defend. Wait, wait, wait. What's wrong with the, the seven virtues, right? What's wrong with humility and chastity and patience, right? Is there something wrong with these things? And it really struck me at that point that, again, this language has a way of cutting through our jargon to hit our imagination where it's a little bit raw and make us think twice about good and evil, sin and righteousness. And so, so as we got into modesty recently in this series, it kind of struck me, I'm a little ahead of myself here, before we talk about modesty, which you kind of funnel into chastity a little bit there, or humility, uh, before we talk about that, maybe we should recognize that part of teaching a child the way he or she should go means helping them understand that there is, there are, to cut, use Solomon's language from the Proverbs, there are two roads, there are two paths. There's the path of wisdom, and then there's the path of folly, and this is the path of virtue, the path of vice. What we don't want to do for our kids or for, for anybody really is confuse our learning of the law, vice versus virtue, with the gospel that we're saved apart from works of the law, right, in a wisdom that's a totally different kind of righteousness in Christ and who he is, but that doesn't mean that we cast down the law, right? We, we uphold it. And in this way, I think this, these categories are very helpful for, for kind of boiling to the surface why righteousness is better than unrighteousness and why as Christians born again of water and the Spirit, uh, we want to we strive for civil human righteousness, even as we trust in a righteousness not our own on the last day. So the first pair, these pairs of virtue versus vice, is humility versus hubris. Yeah, or pride, right? Pride is kind of the normal way of saying that, but the Latin is, is really kind of hubris. It's actually the word in Latin, right? So, and, and humility is, is a weird issue today, too, because in English, humility has almost become a form of pride. That's what virtue signaling is all about, right? How can you say that that's true? That's so unhumble of you. You're, you're arrogant to say you believe in absolute truth, as if humility is some sort of absence of knowledge or, or absence of anything. 
humility is an awareness of limitations. Uh, we, we talked about this when we were talking about uh, teaching self-esteem. To esteem oneself rightly is to be humble, versus to esteem oneself as more than you really are is to be filled with pride, or, or again, this, this hubris. And I love that word hubris because, it again, it awakens the imagination to think about the, uh, no one wants this, no one wants this set of them that I have hubris. Yeah, we all want everyone to tell us how good we are, right? And to see that that, that hunger for everyone to tell me how good I am, that is another, you could say it's your ambition, right? Your, and and your, your desire to be praised, as opposed to humility would be more along the lines of your desire to be good for good's own sake. And good's own sake is not that you will get a reward for it. How backwards are we in all of our discussions about sanctification and, and the life of faith as Christians that we still think good works ought to get rewarded? That shows you how bad we are. We don't think they're good enough themselves. We think I have to have something more. I do good, then you pay me. Not I do good just because it's good. Humility is the virtue of believing that good is its own value and you need no reward for it. Whereas hubris wants to be rewarded for its good. It wants to be lauded and praised even when it hasn't been what it should be. And in that way, this first category kind of does like the first commandment is to the Ten Commandments, it kind of carries everything else underneath it so that everything's going to flow from it. And I don't pretend to be a scholar of these of these virtues and vices, but you can see that the pride, you know, as the saying goes, comes before the fall, and humility is kind of the, the, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom, right? To, to know that I don't have it in and of myself. And even the pagans kind of pick up on this, where they say things like, uh, the first step to knowing is to know that you know nothing, right? And, and so I'm going to step back and say something about that there too. So there is a way that even an unbeliever can approach these virtues and vices and really agree with them, see them as good things. As Christians, I would say we have a special insight into them because of the Ten Commandments and because of the gospel. But they are things that are just categories of the way the world works. And the first step, right, the first step of being good and not evil is not thinking you're good when you are evil, right, and being willing to learn what you don't know. And that starts with humility as opposed to the hubris, the arrogance of thinking you know everything when you know nothing at all. You have paired the virtue of humanity with the vice of envy. Why those two together? Right. So humanity here isn't really talking about like our, our essence as being humans. And I've struggled with this a little bit too, like what this one means, because you want to say it's contentment in a sense, right? The, the, the normal word you're, you'll hear translated is, is gentleness. But again, the Latin is more close to the word humanity. So you think about being humane, or we say, you know, that's that's inhuman of somebody to do such a thing. That's what it's getting at here. So we want to be the humane treatment of animals is the, the gentle treatment of anim, animals, or, or to recognize that man in his nature was created to be kind of an image of God to the creation itself. And so we want to reflect that image of, of a kind or a generous or a, a gentle again identity or image of self that we would push toward those around us we want to treat people treat everything in a humane way and the opposite of that 
You know, the, the reason why I would not be humane to you is because I want what you have. <laughs> I am discontent with our relationship in some way. And to track that to envy is, is quite ingenious on the part of, uh, on the part of the ancients as well. To see that it is my hunger for what you are that leads me to abuse you in whatever way I would do that, right? So the inhumane treatment of animals, just to kind of keep running with that language, is done so we can get something out of of them for the most part. Very rarely are people just beating dogs to beat dogs because they love beating dogs, right? It's it's a result of some other thing that they're acting out upon. Or we put the chickens in the cages and they, they have this horrible chicken cage life and, and there's some definite truth to that. Why? So we can get more meat, right? We're trying to get something out of that. That's inhumane though because it is covetousness. It wants more of reality than reality has given you at this point. So, you know, to break this down and kind of push it toward how do we help a child see that to be working for the good of the other is better than to only view everything through the eyes of how good it is for myself. That is to teach a child to be humane as opposed to have them pursue the natural vice of envy, which we all kind of carry within us, right? And again, some of this is really about law and gospel. And how do we teach the child to love the law without teaching the child they have to keep the law in order to be loved? Yeah? And it's not that easy. But it starts with, again, showing how the vice of envy ends up destroying the brotherhood of love, which would see another doing good or receiving good and rejoice in that and even seek to make that thing happen. I think that's what's going on between these two. Another virtue you have paired with the vice temperance versus gluttony but this must be simply more than how much food's on the plate or how much one consumes whatever the consumable may be there's a spiritual issue here right yeah i I totally agree and it's like when we talked about modesty is you know it's more than just about sex. It's about a bigger issue than that. It's about vanity, right? And temperance here, too. I mean, you mentioned gluttony kind of always gets connected to food. Temperance historically is connected only to drink, right? So that one who is temperate is a teetotaler. They don't drink at all. Uh, But what you want to hear here instead is that this is about the virtue of moderation as opposed to the vice of excess, right? And this is really at the heart of what's wrong with America. God help me for saying it, right? We have idolized excess to nobody's business. I mean, supersize me because it's cheaper, right? Give me all that you can give, as opposed to, say, seeing the value of something like fasting, not as something that's going to like earn you righteousness before God, but as a practice of self-control. And, and I'm not, I'm not a really huge advocate of fasting so much as the, to advocate moderation, right? Temperance, slowing down and not taking all that you can simply because it's good to not be enslaved to everything that's around you as opposed to, and people who do struggle with, with overeating issues as, as a person who himself has been seriously overweight at one point in my life, I, I know the slavery <laughs> that, that ice cream held over me, right? And I know what, what kind of power that had, but it's not just about food. It's about that over excess in anything. You can, you can be a glutton for 
for video game playing. You can be a glutton for legalism, right? You, you can be a glutton for just about anything. It's where you let the excess confuse you and blind you to what is, again, a moderate receiving of the good without having to let it rule over you via your passions. To be able to recognize the good gift as it sits and yet still be more than uh, subject to that thing. And again, teaching this to children in our day and age is pretty difficult. I, I know, I <laughs> I think it was about a week before Christmas, I, I, it struck me that there weren't enough presents under the tree. And part of this was because we were going to go visit my, my parents and some of the presents were going to be there. But I go, oh goodness, I got to get more presents under the tree here. And so I went out and we, we bought some presents. It felt great. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And then we get to grandma and grandpa's house and out, out come presents and then more presents and then more presents. And and I, I'm thankful for this. I don't want to bash my mom and my kids had a great time. A lot of it was clothing that they needed, yada, yada. But like trying to, to have moderation at that moment didn't exist. Or you put the Christmas cookies out, right? Moderation. It, it doesn't exist in our world. It is so hard to teach a child to see the value of delayed gratification and that it's actually a virtue to not have something, right? But I think that this is a biblical reality. It's called self-control as opposed to uh, the biblical reality of, of, of the loss, lawlessness, loss of self-control, which gluttony kind of summarizes. But again, if you're trapped only in thinking of this as a food issue, you got to hear it as whatever, as, as Paul says, whatever rules over you, or as Jesus says this, whatever rules over you that you are enslaved to, being set free by the Son of God, you are free indeed to at least call it that <laughs> and say, yep, I'm enslaved to this thing. And then to day by day, walking in forgiveness, renewed in your baptism, strive to not be enslaved to it in the here and now, at least physically speaking, for the sake of your neighbor. And again, how to teach your children then. Fun isn't the definition of whether it was good or not. Yeah. Instead, sometimes things are good because they aren't fun. That's actually why it's good is because it teaches you to endure, to stand or any of these such things. When we come back, the virtue of chastity and the vice of fornication. We'll talk about that with Pastor Jonathan Fisk, host of a radio program called Sharper Iron and author of the book, Broken, Seven Christian Rules That Every Christian Ought to Break as Often as Possible. This is part 12 of our series on raising Christian children in an age of secular progressivism. We're talking about virtue and vice. Why does it feel like everyone's always angry on social media? What exactly is a podcast? Is digital technology helping or hurting your spiritual life? How can the church harness the power of the internet to reach the lost? If these questions hit home for you, you won't want to miss this month's issue of the Lutheran Witness magazine on digital technology and the church. Subscribe today at cph.org witness. The Lutheran Witness, interpreting the contemporary world from a Lutheran Christian perspective. Holy Cross Lutheran Church, Moline, Illinois, invites you to join us in receiving the Lord's gifts in word and sacrament. Sunday services are at 8.15 and 10.45 a.m., with Bible class and Sunday school at 9.30 a.m. We are located in the Quad Cities at 4107 21st Avenue, Moline, Illinois. Welcome in the name of our Lord. Where doctrine is life. You're listening to Issues Etc. 
An average of 20 military veterans kill themselves every day. Project Operation Barnabas is a network of LCMS congregations who reach out to veterans and their congregations and their communities with the gospel of Jesus Christ. Operation Barnabas is a program of LCMS Ministry to the Armed Forces. Find out more at lcms.org slash armed forces. Serving those who serve. LCMS Ministry to the Armed Forces. lcms.org slash armed forces. Listening to God's Word, daily prayers, frequent and faithful reception of the Eucharist, confession of sins and absolution, good works. Learn more about the life of Lutheran piety in the Issues Etc. Book of the Month for January, Thank, Praise, Serve, and Obey, Recover the Joys of Piety. It's written by regular guest Pastor Will Whedon. Browse before you buy at issuesetc.org or call 1-800-325-3040. Thank, Praise, Serve, and Obey. They may call you doctor, or they may call you chief, but you're gonna have to serve somebody. Yes, you are, you're gonna have to serve somebody. We're talking about virtue and vice as a key to discernment, part 12 of our series on raising Christian children in an age of secular progressivism with Pastor Jonathan Fisk. I'm Todd Wilkin, this is Issues Etc. Digital technology in the church is the theme for the latest edition of the Lutheran Witness magazine. It covers topics like the spiritual implications of technology, the internet and evangelism, loving your neighbor on the World Wide Web, and more. You can find out more at cph.org slash witness, cph.org slash witness, interpreting the contemporary world from a Lutheran perspective, the Lutheran Witness magazine, cph.org slash witness. The next pair that you have for us here, Jonathan, is chastity and fornication, and kind of hearkening back to an earlier conversation, this idea of modesty or chastity is uh, broader than mere abstinence. Right. Well, see, in abstinence, I believe, was the, the way it was translated on the one site I was looking at yesterday, but I know chastity is, is a use of the word or a translation from other places I've seen in the past, and I, I totally am with you because this isn't about sex being bad, Right. And abstinence does fall into that little medieval kind of late platonic anti-sex thinking that the church did kind of pick up for a while. And it's not about that. One can be chaste while being sexually active. The thing is you do it in marriage with one person who is also of the opposite sex, generally with children being an option, right? And that all of that is piled into what you might call fidelity as well as another way I would translate this versus infidelity. To see that the sexual gift is one that is built into what marriage is, what man and woman are, and that we are made not only for each other, man for woman, woman for man, but the two becoming flesh are made for the third who will who will generally speaking, it doesn't always happen, but generally speaking, there's going to be a third that gets born out of this reality. And that infidelity, fornication of all forms, whether it's even something as, as simple and hidden as pornography, ends up dividing that relationship. It ends up putting stumbling blocks or, or barriers within the, uh, the intimacy and the trust and the vulnerability that the sexual act is given to both express and fulfill, if I can say it that way. I, I think I just got really deep there, and I apologize if I did, but I, I think that's pretty much at the heart of this reality chasteness within the marriage is 
a vulnerability, a freedom to be known as you are, including all of your sin, which then is not rejected but commits unto death. And to fornicate, to fornicate is to go elsewhere than the one to whom you are given to have that freedom with. And in this, fornication doesn't have to be that you're out there in the red light district. It doesn't even have to be pornography. It can simply be you sitting at the desk and looking at that guy that just walked by and seeing how nice he was and thinking, why isn't my husband that nice? Yeah. Here you have put a barrier between yourself and the one that you've been unified with by God. We do have that. It's a vice. It tears us apart, right? And this is important too. All of these vices are in your flesh. They're in your heart, right? So if we take them through the Sermon on the Mount, they're going to condemn you at some point. So don't hear me saying that you can actually avoid these things entirely. You can't avoid fornication. It is part of your flesh. What you can do is learn that it's a vice. It's evil. It harms. And so rather than let it get to my mouth and my hands to capture it in my heart by the mind of Christ and to take it to the cross and bury it at the sacrament and to believe it's not a road I want to pursue. I want to pursue the road of chastity. I want to walk with my spouse toward the last day in fidelity and commitment to each other, vulnerable and yet forgiven. And and then again, to teach this to children, right? That, that marriage is not just about sex and sex is not just about sex, but it's a bigger reality about two becoming one in commitment to each other with whom then our God's commitment to us is the ultimate picture, that we're just a reflection of that reality, that that's a virtue, that kind of commitment and that infidelity, fornication, whatever form it takes is something which divides and tears down and breaks. Is this a virtue that has to be taught very gradually in an age-appropriate way. I'm thinking about what one would teach very small children about this, except and probably not beyond dad always loves mom and Mm. only loves mom and vice versa. And dad will always be with mom and she'll always be with him. And that's all you need to know right now. Yeah. Yeah, I, I think so. It's the kind of thing that I, I my mind is ch- kind of changes on this sometimes about how much a younger kid can really handle. Uh, there were former times when, you know, everyone's in the same room and mom and dad are under the blanket. And that's just the way it is because that's how it happens. And we kind of now have been Victorianized a little bit, which again rolls out of this almost anti-sex mentality of the Middle Ages. And sometimes I wonder if, if we're not over the top on that. I'm not, I'm not saying, you know, go out and be inappropriate or anything like that. I'm just, I'm just saying, I wonder if our kids can't handle a little more language uh, than we maybe give them credit for, for being able to handle and work their way through it. I think one of the ways this really shows itself though, Todd, and it, it gets more, I think it, what you were saying it from a different angle, it's like if my wife and I, have a disagreement that is not just, you know, I like pizza, you like pie, but in fact leads to tears in some way, shape, or form, and the children see those tears. It is pretty important that the children also see the hug that comes on the other side. It is pretty important that the children also hear the one who is hurt saying, I forgive you to the one who who wasn't hurt. It is pretty important that the children understand that husband and wife don't always treat each other the way they ought to be treated, but that the virtue of chastity is that this is not an excuse for fornication, right? That this does not send us away from each other, but under Christ brings us back closer and in in really in forgiven ways stronger than we were before and then as you apply this as well to the to the actual you know function of coitus right and, and as these parts have to be used at some point in your life there, there does need to be a conversation where that happens um, again I keep I always try to bring it back to 
the making of children as being the, the proof and the pudding. So what I've said to my children in the past is, look, uh, what happened was a part of me broke off and it got stuck on a part of your mother. And that's you. Now, it was stuck on her, her little part inside of her, and it took nine months, and then, and then you came out. But, but you are, in fact, a piece of each of us that, that got fused. That's God's doing, and it's, it's marvelous in our eyes, and that's why we're married, because we are committed to you. Because God gave us you through this process. That's what marriage is. And that's why you don't want to have this thing we call sex with people that you're not committed to and married to. Because then you don't have that ability to have a child that has both father and mother on their side and for them from the start. You might just then be left alone with the child. And that child's going to hurt as a result of this. And for my kind of money on that... My five and six-year-old, they can follow that. And they may not get all of it. Don't get me wrong. No, no child really understands everything you say. But they at least kind of, oh, yeah, there's this thing mothers and fathers do together that commits them to each other, which is bound up in making me. That's a good thing, right? That's Well, that's chastity, even if I don't use the word. Another one that you want to talk about, and boy, this is one that is so necessary from the earliest ages. And we tend not to think of these as kind of primary virtues, but they really are patience. And where you would expect someone to say impatience, you have rage. Right, right. Or anger, or the the Latin there is ira from irate, right? So to be irate. Um, I like rage personally because anger just seems kind of tame in in the way I hear English today. Rage kind of carries with it. it. It is the... The point at which I have lost thought, yeah? I am simply in wrath now. I am hurt, and I will hurt in return. And it doesn't mean that there's malice there. It's just so expressed in passion now. The the feeling of injustice against me has risen up so strong that all I can do is lash out. And anger on this, anger is a really interesting thing. Because I think, biblically speaking, anger is a virtue, if we understand it rightly. Rage is not, but but anger is. Because anger is an attribute of God. God is angry. And one of the things we know about attributes of God is that they're all the time. God isn't one thing now and another thing later. He is eternal. What He is, He always is. Which, that means that, and heaven help me for how I can try to express this, God is always angry. And it's a very good thing. There's nothing wrong with it. Where it gets kind of answerable for us is to recognize what is God always angry at? God's not always angry at everything, right? God is always angry at evil because evil is unjust and anger is the proper response to injustice. It is because God is angry at our sin that he dies on the cross in the person of his son, Jesus, (laughs) yeah, where the anger is justly met and poured out and then a miracle of miracles he's just and the justifier at that point right but but so to see that anger isn't necessarily the problem but now as a fallen person as james says the the anger of man does not bring about the righteousness of god i've got this attribute of having passionate dislike of injustice that's twisted by my sinful inability to see justice clearly so that I perceive injustice as anything that hurts me and justice as anything that helps me. And knowing that about myself now, I can know that when I get angry, I in fact do have rage that is unthoughtful 
anger, anger which isn't right, which wants to lash out. And the antidote to that, or the virtue which counters it is, if you pursue it or as you pursue it, is patience, which we also know is a fruit of the Spirit, that I can see patience as a willingness to stand still and let the picture unfold a little bit more past my feelings uh, in order to see how perhaps I'm also part of this problem, which, which I generally am. And that's a little fluid and maybe doesn't nail down patience as much as it should. But I think we all understand rage, right? And so to to pursue patience is to pursue the opposite of that. It's, again, not to be enslaved by my anger at injustice, but to walk a little more slowly, recognizing that my eyes generally have as many logs in them as there are splinters in the eyes of my neighbor. You have liberality and greed, which seems pretty straightforward. How do you talk about this in terms of virtue and vice with your kids? I, you know, and as, we, as you asked it that way... I don't know that I've talked enough with my kids about greed, and that's that's a problem, and i got to think about that a little bit more. Certainly, though, I see it. You see it, right? You see it when <laughs> we dish up. We have, we have five kids, and oftentimes we'll have a pot of soup or, or a salad or something, and, and it's just easier to dish it all up in one pile. So I'll just put all the plates in front of me and like just put all the plates together, and then we hand out the plates. And if we ever get to a, a point where it's like, here, child, you pick first, you can watch that they don't just grab a plate right? What do they do? They sit there and they like try to find the best pile of rice with the soup with it, right? As if there's some kind of difference or as if there isn't more. Uh, There is this inherent hunger for me getting, it isn't even necessarily the biggest piece, but the right piece. And to try to address that part of our nature, that we do this with everything all the time. I want the best seat. I want the best toys. I, everything that we approach, we, we, we have this hunger that I would have a better one than you would. That the answer to this is now liberality is, is another way of translating. And again, this, that's closer to the Latin, but the word we would use now more often is charity. Instead of looking and saying, what's the best bowl of soup out here? It's, well, I know my mother needs a little more than I do, so that big one's for her. I won't take that one. I'll leave that one. Here's, I can always get more. I'll just take this smallest one over there. That one's got a burnt piece. I know nobody else will like that. I'll take that one. Now, that is so contrary to our nature to think that way, and no kid's just going to natively think that way, right? But to try to acknowledge as a family and as a culture that such thought is valuable that such action is valuable, that taking the lowest seat at the wedding is valuable uh, up until the, the master of the wedding tells you, come up, sit up here in a better spot. This is, this is a good thing to pursue. Now, how do I teach that to my kids? That is, I got I to gotta say, Todd, uh, you got me. I'm a failure on this one. I have not in any way that I can think of intentionally worked at having my kids understand this one, and, and I got I to gotta work on it. Finally, you have as the last pairing of a virtue with a vice, industry versus sloth. Yeah, another one that just, we have both sides of this in wickedness as Americans because we do love industry. We we love production. There's There's a whole industry devoted to production and industry that's out there, right? And yet most of us kind of are industrious for the sake of our sloth. We, why do you want to work so hard? Or you, let me say it this way. If you'd asked me when I was 18, why are you going to college? I'd say to get a good job. Why are you going to get a good job? So I can make some money. Why are you going to make some money? So I can retire. Why are you going to retire? So I can do what I want. That 
mentality as if that's what life's about that i i somehow have to work just so i can't work <laughs> yeah uh, this misses the value the good work of work the good work of industry that, that when god made us he didn't make us to sleep all day he made us to be busy in the garden with our hands and yes do we all have various vocations and love doing different things absolutely and so frankly one man's one man's leisure might be another man's work yeah but to, to see that there is a value in that work itself that when when i talk to my children about their futures what i want them to believe is that it is good to do something it is good to put the hand to the plow it is good to have a task about which you love my oldest who's just 13 now we discovered about a year and a half ago that she likes to draw and it really had moved past doodling and just coloring with crayons to really wanting to do a little bit more and so we have begun buying her books on on art and she particularly likes to draw manga which is this uh, japanese style of comic book and so we're buying her books on manga and we got or a class she went to uh, locally on on how to do these various forms and whatnot why well as i as i I hope as i talk with her about these things it's not because i think well daughter you're going to be a professional artist someday and make a living with your art i don't i think that's just that's the wrong way of looking at it it's not about making money it's about the good work in and of itself the art is for its own sake in this in this sense i you love doing this with your hands i want you to get good at it so you have something to share with your neighbor right that's what industry is and to see that that applies to any vocation anything that you put your hand to and even then that things like production and efficiency and all that that applies to being better at doing with your hands what they do for the good of your neighbor as opposed to seeing it all about kind of the the get out of jail i don't want to do any work i I just want to lounge around and do nothing Uh, i am ultimately given over to my laziness i hate work i have no good work well that's that's a place i think a lot of americans actually find themselves uh sadly and it sometimes it's a question of reassessing what you do and asking well how is this good for my neighbor and finding some fulfillment out of that sometimes it's about having made decisions that brought you to a place where you have to do a, a job you don't really want to do but the answer to that job I hate right is not no work (laughs) it is not sloth it is not freedom to do whatever I darn well please doing right the answer to that is to find the value the virtue of industry and to see the good work in and of itself as created for you to do not to gain something from it yeah not to get paid for it but for the sake of the good it brings to your neighbor the the good for its own sake and there we kind of come full circle to humility a little bit right that 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 ultimately vice versus virtue is about seeing that the good which god would have us do is there's a lot of ways scripturally to talk about these things it's good for its own sake it doesn't need a reward it is the reward versus vice vice is pursuing an abuse of the good for a reward which ultimately destroys itself you know as as it's the wisdom of solomon says of uh, of the dame folly she tears down her house with her own hands even as she tries to build it she's she's demolishing it with her own hands by her her ignorance of the vices that she's let rule and enslave her so so what i wanted to do with this conversation hopefully have we have is at least kind of set up as we go forward and talk more about particular virtues not necessarily with the language we use today but teaching various things like stewardship to children and whatnot you know that we would we would couch this in a in a structure that is ultimately about teaching discernment teaching about having a mind that knows that there is a good and evil 
and wants to pursue the good, that sees the scriptures as the, the clearest fulfillment of that, but also recognizes that we can talk about this in ways that don't require the scriptures, but that simply apply to all of us wherever we are. And then, knowing that where we are doesn't always like that, nonetheless, uh, wanting to be people who stand firm in dark days, having the light of truth as a lamp for our feet. So hopefully, hopefully we've done that and we've set up the next few bits of the series. With only a minute or so here, Jonathan, you said you, you want to be able to make this by way of doing a proper distinction of law and gospel over against what you call the antinomian error that so often confuses them. What are you talking about? Well, again, I'm getting at what I experienced kind of in a surprising way when a tweet that said something along the lines of, uh, you know, gluttony is bad. I don't think that's what my tweet said. It probably wasn't even that clear, but but it said something, you know, gluttony is bad. And that was just the tweet. And someone came back to me uh, on Facebook and, and is complaining about how that's, that's not something that we should be saying as Lutherans. And it's like, well, wait, just because I said a thing that's a, is law, which, which is part of God's law, that's not Lutheran? Just because I didn't put the gospel on the back end of it? I mean, do, do we really think that we have to always balance law and gospel? Aren't they just both true in their own kind of circumstances? So that, yeah, gluttony is pretty much always bad, even though, yes, it's forgiven. It's, it's still bad, right? And so I think this is an important thing for the present state of Lutheranism in America to wrestle with. Because if we're going to move forward as the culture crashes around us and destroys itself around us, it's going to be because we love both law and gospel. And that means not confusing them, but that means allowing them both to stand as their own thing. That means being able to say that I think pursuing patience as an individual is a good pursuit and that I want to give that as my New Year's resolution. I'm going to, I don't, I don't actually make them like Wolf Mueller does. I don't even make them, but, but I want to, I want to be a more patient man. That's not unLutheran, nor does it deny the gospel, nor does me saying, Jesus Christ, dead on the cross, is totally sufficient for me, and I don't even have to be any more patient than I already am to be entirely saved, nor is that a denial of the law, that patience is a good thing. And and to see that that keeping them separate is the real understanding of the distinction, that they're two different words which are both true, and when we commingle them, when we try to make the law be the gospel, then we get into trouble. When we try to make the gospel be the law, we get into trouble there as well, and you end up really losing them both. And so, in this series, I know it's also been, and we're teaching children, right? We're in the the first article vocation of the fourth commandment. There's a lot more law than gospel that we've been talking about, and that's going to be the case through the rest of this series. That doesn't mean that the gospel isn't true or that I don't believe it, right? It simply means that as I stand here with you, bought by the blood of Jesus, the, the, the pathway to my love for you is not me proclaiming I never have to do anything. (laughs) The pathway to my love for you as my neighbor is me owning that the law is still good even while it accuses me. The law is still good even while it kills me. The law is still good even while it exacerbates my sinful condition. The law is still good as the way we should go as we have this walk under the shadow of the cross toward the last day. Pastor Jonathan Fisk is host of a radio show called Sharper Iron, He's author of the book, Broken, Seven Christian Rules That Every Christian Ought to Break As Often as Possible. You can order this book from Concordia Publishing House. Their toll-free number during regular business hours, 1-800-325-3040. Ask for Broken by Pastor Jonathan Fisk, or browse before you buy at issuesetc.org. Click Listen On Demand. Jonathan, thanks. Thank you for having me. 
Tomorrow on Issues Etc., we're going to begin a new series with Pastor Will Whedon, author of the Issues Etc. Book of the Month for January. Thank, praise, serve, and obey. Recover the joys of piety. We will be talking about Lutheran piety with him, and it's our media coverage of religion segment with Terry Mattingly. The reason that we can teach our children both to pursue these virtues and to avoid these vices is because we know that our children, as believers in Jesus Christ, have the Holy Spirit, and He is teaching those things too. I'm Todd Wilkin. I'll talk with you tomorrow. Thanks for listening to Issues Etc. Listen weekday afternoons to Pastor Todd Wilkin and guests on Issues Etc. Issues Etc. is a listener-supported program. Your financial support is vital for the continuation and expansion of this worldwide outreach. Our mailing address, Issues Etc., PO Box 83, Collinsville, Illinois, 62234. Box 83, Collinsville, Illinois, 62234. You can also donate at our website, issuesetc.org. Issues Etc., is a production of LPR, Lutheran Public Radio. Trinity Orchard Farm is settled between two rivers showing the way to the water of life. For worship that is reverent, relevant, and refreshing like pure water, or for excellent education in a unique setting, check out our church and school. We're just five miles north of Highway 370 on Highway 94 in St. Charles County. Visit us on the web at trinityorchardfarm.com. That's trinityorchardfarm.com. Our phone number is 636-250-3350. We Lutherans were never aided by following along with some other traditions, theological priorities, and catchphrases. Issues Etc. regular guest, Pastor Heath Curtis, coordinator for stewardship for the Lutheran Church Missouri Synod on a Lutheran approach to stewardship. Other folks are not approaching it from our good, solid Lutheran understanding of law and gospel and vocation. There's a place to talk about this in Christianity, and we have a way of talking about stewardship as Lutherans without ever using the word stewardship, if you like. I'm going to talk to you today about your vocation in your home, in your church, in your society, and how each one of these makes a claim on you, on your presence, on your support, on your prayers. That's how we should talk about this as Lutherans. You'll find several stewardship resources at lcms.org stewardship, lcms.org stewardship.